Hey, welcome to Going Off Track. Hey. Hey. I'm hey. here. Hey. Here with Brad and Steve G. Yep. Stevie G. Stevie G. P.H. Steve. P.H. Steve. Um, Stephen. Stefan. Stefan. And we're here. Uh, it's been a little while, huh? Yeah, it's been a while since we've been here at Pulse Music at Pulse on Music. West 29th Street in Manhattan. Oh. Yeah, check out Pulse <laughs> Music for all your podcasting needs. But uh, it feels like home. Feels it does. Like we just dropped right good. in and here we are. Yeah. Um, and uh, everyone, we wanted to say thank you to everyone who's been donating to our Patreon page. Yes, man. We've gotten some great... We're like covered now for server costs. Yes. And maybe we can buy ourselves some beer if people yeah. keep coming in and... Um, if you're interested, patreon.com slash off track. You can also get there via our website and there's a whole bunch of tiers. There's a bunch of incentives. We get swag and special episodes and just go check it out. I won't bother you about it if you do. Yeah, check it out. Um, so, yeah. Potential GoPro footage. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You it's never know. Now, it's but testing. Yeah. We're testing. Never know. But yeah, we're doing <laughs> early releases, uh, bonus episodes, a bunch of stuff. So, uh, yeah, thank you everyone. Who's donated and uh, yeah, no ads. So that's no good. Ads. You don't have to listen to us talk except about matches. Except for us talking about Patreon. That's true. And, and thanks for you Venmo people that keep, keep yes. hitting us up. You know, it's uh, and you too, Ren. Yes, we'll Ren. Thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, all you Venmoers. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's uh, all good. We'll take any money, whether it's monthly or by the episode. Yes. Um, and I, I just got back from Bali and uh, Singapore last week so exotic so yeah i got back and then like instantly went and got a root canal Ooh. so like wow i'm not going to bali if i have to get a root yeah, canal. You know, I, think, I, don't th- I don't think that those two things are related <laughs> um but uh how was yeah. that root canal i think like, i might have was, to get a root canal. i think it was more expensive than my vacation Aye. um but uh yeah it was it's actually it's actually not that bad but i have to get a crown now right so it's a whole it's a lot of work take care of that it's a whole. I'm doing it's a lot Friday. of holding your mouth open. It's yeah. a lot. Yeah, they let you bite down on this thing, thankfully. But oh, yeah, really? Yeah, they put this like little like plastic piece in your mouth that kind of keeps it open, but really? you still have to be awake. Mike Dennis doesn't have that. Yeah, you got to get one, man. Ugh, I couldn't so keep my mouth school. open for an hour. <laughs> I've never experienced that either. Really? Yeah. Yeah. What kind of dentist do you go to? I, dude, what kind of future dentist is this? <laughs> With a jack. It was not, With a it, jaw this jack. is not a very high-tech te- high piece of plastic. <laughs> you gotta ask for that jaw jack. You gotta, you gotta ask for I the can, jaw Maybe jack. I could just make one and bring it in. I'm sure you could. You could use anything. <laughs> use your cell phone. Like maybe a like bottle an eraser. Cap. Yeah. <laughs> um, today on the podcast, uh, we have a band called Sons of Apollo. Um you may know, you definitely know some of the members. You may know Apollo, the y- god of music. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the band features former Dream Theater members, Mike Portnoy and Derek Shernan, who are both on the podcast. Uh, it also features Ron Bumblefoot Tall, who's ex-Guns N' Roses, Billy Sheehan, who you know from Mr. Big, and Jeff Scott Soto from Journey, and ex-Ingve Malmsteen Rising Force. And they have a record called Psychotic Symphony. And it is out now. It came out October 20th. So obviously this is a little bit of a different podcast for us. Um, but Not that different. It's musicians. It's musicians. But I'm saying like, you know, like I know these are different. Genre of music. Genre wise. Yeah, never a had different. a superstar band. Never had a superstar. I mean, I mean yeah. Wait, Mike, Portnoy, a... Mike Portnoy, obviously like kind of a, a legendary drummer, I would say. Um, played with Avenged Sevenfold. Obviously was in Dream, Dream Theater for like 20 years. So uh, yeah. And yeah. So it's cool to have, I mean, it's cool they agreed to come by. Um, and yeah, we talked about Sons of Apollo. We got some pretty crazy stories about Frank Zappa, a bunch of stuff. So yeah, different vibe genre-wise, but super interesting podcast. Yeah. Do, do you guys have anything to As you're going to gonna see in yeah. 10, 9, yeah, I'm going to shut up now <laughs> and we can get into this, uh, this podcast with uh, Sons of Apollo. Check it out. The honeycombbs. Yeah, the that's honeycomb the first thing cool. I asked Stephen when I walked in this room is, is there a rhyme or reason to why the holes are placed where they are? And apparently there Allegedly is. There is. Yes. No. <laughs> math, dude, it's math. It's all math. It like that's like pie. Chuck, Chuck. It's Allegedly, math. this guy figured out some Oh, come on. says something, but it 
This guy needs to get a life, all right? <laughs> all right. It, well, it probably what it does have to do with is the space between the holes. Like, you know, where the holes exactly are is probably not as important. If somebody like that is spending that much time to find the space of holes, he's never been in a hole before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's there quite you go. Awesome. Have you seen this thing about the American Horror Story posters? Where no. people have like a phobia of holes and they're having like people have are having full on panic attacks because it's like some of the characters have all these holes. It, it's it's some kind of like there's a name for I it. I never heard of that. Yeah, I just learned about it. Wait, people have a fear of holes in yeah, general? It, it's like just this woman was hole? like, I saw this thing and all of a sudden I got like I freaked out and it's happened to a bunch of people. Weird. Yeah. What I didn't a, hear about that. Yeah. No. But I've seen the posters. Yeah. What about yeah. These uh, diplomats in in Cuba who uh, <laughs> the sonic she, attack yeah the sonic attack did you guys hear Dude, about it's this so, so fucking bizarre so ever since the the uh, r- rules with Cuba got got loosened uh, the U S embassy in Cuba all these diplomats started coming back with bizarre ear problems and headaches and and there were so many that were coming back with similar symptoms that they finally figured out there was some sort of sonic unaudible sonic attack some of it was some of it they knew that when it was happening because it's actually i i heard that they um that some of the 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 beam of sound or whatever it was (laughs) was so focused that you could literally roll into and out of it like on a on a big bed like really? you can roll over and be in the path of the I have no idea what the fuck game. you guys are talking about. <laughs> uh, well, I, I say, is that a tattoo of uh, the state of New Jersey? It is. And what city is it pointing to? Well, the star is the New Brunswick area where I grew up. And then I've been in Jersey City for about 10 years. So I got an amendment <laughs> up in Jersey uh. City. That's my Scotty dog. And he hangs out with me there. So oh, That's cool. So that's New Jersey. So you're actually from New York, right? Yeah, I have uh, the Empire State Building there. There we go. Yeah, I'm from Long Island. Okay. But I don't have a Long Island tattoo. (laughs) I I ran out of space. (laughs) (laughs) But I read um, that your your father ran uh, a radio station in in California in so, Carmel yeah so were you actually did you do a lot of growing up in California or mostly New York no he him and my mom got divorced when I was like a year and a half and then he moved out there I stayed in New York but I'd spend the summers with him but um you ever see the movie play Misty for me with Clint Eastwood yeah in the movie Clint Eastwood plays a DJ yeah. at KRML in Carmel California <laughs> and my dad saw this movie and he's like that's what I want to do he moved to Carmel and got a job at KRML being a disc jockey. He literally but did But was a... he a DJ before he moved there? No. So he was like... He saw that movie and said, that's what I want to do. I'm be a disc jockey on KRML Radio in Carmel, California. <laughs> and and went and did I it. I want to be Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And Clint Eastwood, <laughs> Clint Eastwood was the, the mayor of Carmel, like, actually, um, oh, right. for all those years. So my actually, he held one of his um, election campaign parties or whatever at my dad's house. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's deep, man. Yeah. That's amazing. So how long was he a DJ then? From like 73 to 75 or so. Uh, and I used to go do the morning shows with him. And he would let me literally pick the tunes and spin the records. And like that was my first taste of fame. Like uh, <laughs> I was on the, t- uh, I was placing a collect call. I said a collect call from Mike to whatever. Uh, and the operator was like, are you Mike Portnoy? I was like a five-year-old kid, <laughs> and she recognized my voice from doing the radio show with my dad. Really? Yeah. Wow. That was like my first taste of fame at like five years old. And so was it like an FM station, like 70s? Like, what were you playing? It might have been AM. But what kind of music was it? It was, it was rock. Like, you know, he was playing like the Stones and Bowie and Beatles. Oh, and, right. Um, so it wasn't like Top 40 where it was a No, no, no. It was rock. Of- and like, he would let me you know, take over the show for a while. And I was playing like Cheech and Chong records and stuff like that. <laughs> like earache my eye. And... Dude, being a DJ in the seventies, like, yeah. must it's like, that's like one of the dream jobs. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Top five dream jobs. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's totally. In that. <laughs> Do you think that like the stuff you were hearing there shaped some of your early influence? Well, I was at that point, I was five years old or whatever. I was already a rock historian. I already was the only, you know, five-year-old kid with like 500 records you know, I had all, you know, I knew, I knew the entire Beatles catalog inside and out and the Stones and the Who and Bowie and Zeppelin and Hendrix and the Doors. I mean, you know, I went and saw George Harrison live 
in 73 when I was six years old. Or, uh, yeah, so I mean, it shaped me, but I think I was already shaped, you know, at that point. Yeah. It just kind of helped continue to, to evolve me. Sure. At what point did you sort of start playing drums? Um, not until I was 11. It was 1978. And I, at that point, I was already, I was like listening to Kiss and things like that around the late 70s. And uh, I went to um, uh, uh, my cousin's house in Florida and he had a drum set set up in the garage. And I just couldn't peel myself off of it. So for my 11th birthday uh, in 1978, my grandfather bought me my first drum kit and he actually had a heart attack that day and ended up dying from, uh, a couple days later. Oh, so it was kind of like his like parting gift to me. You know, he bought me my first drum set, passed on and here I am, you know, 40 years later. Yeah, so it's, I didn't it mean to bring the whole room down. The Damn. energy needed to like make you become a drummer, man. Yeah. It was his soul. That yeah. Went into the drums. That's mm -hmm. deep. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, Ben. So, what do you think about it? Benny's a drummer, so. Yeah. I am. You should have some thoughts on that. I mean, <laughs> I wish I started that young. I think I'd be way better. Nah, you could start <laughs> at any age and you either have it or you don't. I think I had already peaked by the time I was 17. I think I know everything I know on the drums now by the time I was 17 or 18. Yeah? Yeah. So what's like, I mean, then what's been the process of like getting better, just honing technique and stuff like that? Honestly, I don't give a shit about that stuff. I don't care about <laughs> technique. I, I do what I do. I play how I play. I am who I am. And somehow I've been on the cover of Modern Drummer four times now. <laughs> and I'm in their Hall of Fame. But honestly, I never cared about technique. I just wanted to play and, uh, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to get better and better and better. But, um, as I, as I got older, um, I kind of just do what I do and I don't really have time to go home and practice. I mean, I guess I do, but I don't really want to, I have other <laughs> things in my life, you know, you got life. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, that's easy for me to say, having achieved everything I have and won all these these awards, I guess it's easy for me to say, I don't want to practice, but Honestly, I have other things in my life that I care about, you know, beyond the drums. And even when I'm in my bands, drums are just one-tenth of what I'm thinking about or doing or focusing on. So, I don't know. I, I just never really thought about it. Kind of just did did what I did and somehow made a life out of it. That's it's awesome. amazing. How did the two of you guys meet? Uh, Derek auditioned for Dream Theater in 94... Uh, we had just finished making our album Awake, and our keyboard player left during the making of the record, and we knew we were hitting the road for a world tour, and um, we were auditioning keyboard players, and that's when I met Derek. Take it yes, away. That's 20 years. We've wow. uh, known each other. Well, no, no, that would be 25 years. Oh, 25 years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Insane. <laughs> it's Time is flying. It's getting scary how that. far away the 90s are getting. Was <laughs> but here we are together playing again. Uh, 20 years it was 20 years ago we did a european press tour and now here we were in, in europe just a few days ago doing the same thing 20 years later wow. so it's for what different, changed, man? Anything different band <laughs> no we're, we're actually um less mature now <laughs> right? so we've regressed <laughs> nice. uh, in, in maturity that's the way it no goes. it's like it's not like a day hasn't passed it's pretty awesome that's we're awesome. having a fun time was, so was that a nerve-wracking uh audition uh, yeah, it was because it was way outside of my wheelhouse and outside of anything that I've ever played before. But it was a great challenge for me. And and I figured at that audition that I had a 50-50 shot at it. I wouldn't have been surprised if I didn't get it, but I wouldn't have been surprised if I got it. So I was pleasantly surprised that I got the nod. Nice. And where yeah. was the band based out of the, at, at that time? In New York. In New York. Yeah. But started in Boston, right? No, no, no. Well, well, I guess technically it was started in Boston because we were going to Berkeley, but um, we were all from Long Island. We just happened to put the band together while in Boston. While you were there. But we're, we were all Long Islanders. Gotcha. Yeah. I thought I was reading something about, you know, I know you got the new project, but I want to talk about it a little. I got yelled at for talking about Rush from a podcast guest on this Yelled podcast. at for what? Brought up Rush. He's like, ah. <laughs> I don't want to talk about Rush in a very sort of feathery yeah, way. Dismissive. I, I, I wasn't into it. Let's just say that. And 
I thought it was awesome when I'm reading that you guys actually connected for the first time Over talking rush. about playing music in a rush line. Well, rush was pretty a, much the common influence for me and the two guys that put the band together right. back at Berkeley. Um, yeah, all three of us were rush fanatics. I mean, you got to picture yourself in 1985 coming from Long Island. I mean, that rush was like the, the, the ultimate muso prog band, you right. know, but at the same time, as much as I was a rush fanatic, I mean, Neil Peart was like my God. And I even used Kurt shampoo, you know. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. That's hardcore. And, and uh, so if it's spelled the same, yeah. Jesus Christ, that's fucking funny. And uh, it, it said in my high school yearbook, fu- teenage future plans. It said to become the next Neil Peart was in my oh, yeah. high school yearbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. But as much as as much as I loved him and them, I also in 1985 was part of this incredibly hardcore metal scene and hard uh, like. New York hardcore and thrash metal scene that was blossoming around then. So I was living on Long Island and going to see Megadeth and Slayer and Anthrax and Flotsam and Jetsam and Overkill and Exodus and all these bands that were coming around at that time. So I I was a lover of metal and a lover of prog. And when I went off to Berkeley and met those guys, you know, I just happened to fall in with two guys that were rush heads. So that kind of put me on that path. And then I ended up, you know, staying and you know, doing Dream Theater for 25 years. But if I had gone to Berkeley and met a guy that was listening to the Cro-Mags and an agnostic front, I could have ended up in a hardcore band. Yeah, I, yeah. I was just, I could have easily gone in any direction just because I was a music fan of, of all kinds. Funny. Where were you seeing those shows in 85? Were you going into the city? Lamore, or- Brooklyn, yeah. or Sundance on, in, in, uh, in Bayshore, Long Island. Okay. Was it Bayshore? Yeah. Basically, Sundance and Lamore were where I spent every weekend. Those were your spots? Yeah. Man, I just the Lamour in '85 just sounds scary to me. Oh, it was awesome. Woo. It was I and uh, <laughs> I used to literally go every weekend, and I would see everybody from from uh, you know Ingve to uh, Anthrax and Megadeth, and uh, my wife, the my wife who I'm now married to, she was in an all girl thrash band that used to play there like all the time, opening for Overkill and Motorhead and. I mean, I, I was there every weekend. It was it was a great time. Do, awesome. do you feel like there was like less like scene? Like, like, do you feel like people crossed over into different things more? Whereas now it's like more subgenre. I don't think there is a scene now like there was then. Back in the eighties, yeah. you had to go to the clubs every weekend to see these bands, and there was no internet, obviously. So it, you know, you had to go to the re- the local record store. To find out what bands were playing, and you'd have to go get Kerrang! every two weeks or whatever to to read about what albums were coming out. You know, if Metallica had a new album or whatever, there was no internet. I mean, but everybody was at the clubs. That was the scene. I don't don't think there is a scene like that anymore. I don't don't know. Maybe I'm just too old to to notice it. But I don't. I don't think there's a a live scene like there was back in the '80s. Well, we talk about that a lot on here, and and some curious to get your take on, like even that New York scene at that time in the mid '80s. These bands were playing together every weekend, often lived in the same neighborhoods, fed off each other, and it created, you know, a scene where band to band had, you know, a unifying quality that right. tied them all together. And we wonder now, like, do you think that's possible anymore with the internet? Because no. That delocalization kind of Yeah, absolutely. I think kids these days... Well, I can tell you from first-hand experience, my son is 18 years old, and he plays in a band. And... um, Drums? Yeah, he's a drummer. And, uh, you know, all of their contact are through YouTube or social media, Instagram. So his connections go from, you know, from here to South America to Australia to Europe to Wichita, Kansas, you know, it's a, it's far reaching. You don't need your local club scene or, you know, meet other kids at school. Like it was the way it was when I was a kid, when I was a kid, all I had to work with was the people that I went to school with. Right. And then we would go to concerts and, you know, go see shows at the at Madison square garden or the Nassau Coliseum. We'll go to these club shows. Like we're talking <laughs> about, it was, it was a different time and place. What's it like kind of putting out this record? Um, Versus, like, doing a record 25 years ago, like, is, is the way you do press different? Is the way you, like... It, 
I guess, like, how do you kind of approach a new release? Like, because I imagine just the whole media has changed so much. Well, I'll, I'll say back then, like when Dream Theater started, um, I mean, we started in the 80s, but we didn't start putting out records till the early 90s. Back then, the only way you can get your music out is you had to have a record deal. The only way you can get into the recording studio is you needed a record deal to fund it, and you needed a record deal in order to get the magazine coverage or to get on MTV or to get on the radio. Now, you, I mean, like my son's band, for instance, like I was just saying, you just put your videos on on the internet and it's it's everywhere you know and you could access the entire world and and record deals are it's a different world like back then there were thousands of bands selling millions of albums right now there's millions of bands selling thousands of albums <laughs> right you know yeah, the whole entire industry sure. has completely shrunk and uh you can't sell records like you used to that's the bad side but the good side is you can access the whole world at your fingertips fingertips right out of your basement including making the record itself you know right. you couldn't do that when i was a kid you'd have to have somebody put up half a million dollars to be able to go into a studio and make a record yeah and do you think like you know there are parts of that as a that frustrate me sometimes as somebody who had to get signed to a label to get in the studio all the same but then i see like a kid who you know records his own music puts out his own music, promotes his own music without the labels. It's kind of like punk rock a little bit. Like, do you think once the dust settles from the new technology that this actually is maybe could end up being more empowering to a musician in the end? I think it's, I'm sorry to not let you in there, but I'm fascinated. But I, I, I think I'm glad that it's finally come back where the artists can take their music back. To be right. honest, I, there's somebody that works in the industry sitting here with me, but honestly, <laughs> I fucking hate the industry. I hate record companies. I hate all that shit. Kick all, his ass! All, <laughs> hit him! I mean, I, honestly, the record labels have been fucking the artists for the last 50 years, and yeah. it's about time that the artists got their music back. Right. So I think it's awesome. Yeah. And it sucks because you're selling a fraction of what you used to be able to, but... You know what? At least the artists at least have control over their music. Yeah, hundred percent. It's an interesting thing about this new time. I was curious, sort of, how like you guys kind of reconnected, and I mean, I know you guys had were friends, but had you wanted to do this band for a long time, the Sons of Apollo thing? Like, yeah, since two thousand twelve, we reunited and did um, a band with Billy Sheehan and Tony McAlpine, an instrumental like fusion type thing and we went and played dates and Mike and I have always had a chemistry and we realized out there that we, you know, we love playing with each other and we love Billy Sheehan's playing and we, uh, I kept prodding Mike. I go, let's do this for real, man. Let's just get a singer and do it. And Mike wanted to do it, but he was busy with other bands. And so fast forward to 2016 towards, you know, the end of the year, Mike called me and said, are you ready to do this? And I go, let's go. And ever since then, it's been full speed ahead and we went in the studio March 1st and for 10 days we wrote the record. Oh, wow. Very intense. Uh, Mike Bumblefoot, our guitar player. Mike brought in, after we decided to go forward, Mike brought in Ron Thal, Bumblefoot, a.k.a. And Jeff Scott Soto on vocals and Billy Sheehan we had from before. We went in the studio for 10 days and it was just an amazing experience. And we came up with our record psychotic symphony and then did some overdubs and then we worked with our vocalist jeff scott soto and getting all the lyrics and melody lines together and we finished the record uh second week of august what studio did you guys do it in ocean studios in burbank oh okay nice i mean what how complicated is it getting all you guys together i'd imagine scheduling must be insane like you just have to prioritize i guess or? well three of the guys uh, Derek, Jeff, and Billy all live out in California, and then me and Ron are out here on the East Coast. So it's a matter of just getting me and Bumblefoot to get out there. But yeah, in terms of our individual schedules, or you know, this year it's been tough because everybody's scattered doing different things. So we kind of had to, you know, make a conscious effort to find a, a ten-day window to, you know, start the album, write it, and get it going. Then another window to work on the vocals, and then another window to get together to do the videos and stuff like that. But starting next year, once we hit the road and start touring with it, basically, we've all, you know, cleared our, our year. So next year will be a lot easier, you know, once you just have an open calendar to work with. But up until now, it's 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 challenging. Yeah, I can imagine. 
I had a question sort of, I mean, obviously you guys are both super accomplished. I mean, how do you sort of balance sort of the technical stuff? Because the record also sounds very musical to me. And I know like I listen to some technical stuff, it just sounds like showing off sometimes. We've mastered the art of strategic wankery. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that is, Hashtag that strategic, is not wankery. Hashtag strategic wankery. Another great band. Yeah. Um, we really, we're a rock band with sick chops. And a lot of the progressive metal bands, they're based on technique and don't really have any rock background. This band has an octopus pedigree. You can't even, we ran out of arms to list the major credits of all the members of this band. And that's what separates us from all of these rock bands and progressive bands is that each member in this band is a musical ninja. And we're a rare hybrid of technique and, and feel. And you don't get both in many musicians and we're very fortunate to have five members with that quality and that's what separates sons of apollo from every other band in the world that's awesome what's it like when you guys um go into the studio to write for 10 days where where are the ideas like coming from like where does a song start? we're merely like, vessels what's... uh the muses sing through us and just channel and it just you know I, I, I wish to you. i wish i could take credit but you know the gods are you know just kind of coming through us as you know the name of sons of apollo god is as apollo was the god of music and we're exactly. his offspring so i mean so you're giving him credit say? for all the we're giving him credit fuck i, would be, that. Would be I want the credit i did yeah, I came it was up with me that fucking riff. fuck him up there no no fuck that <laughs> because <laughs> i hear the songs and for someone i you know it took me a long time to do three four to do fucking four six like anything like that so sometimes when i hear these songs i'm like how the fuck does this start like is it more because i can't understand how music like that comes together via jamming like, it would have to be discussed, right? The timings and things like that would have to be talked about a little well, bit. At some points, I mean, it depends. Like, there's start, we have starting points before we went in the studio. And right. then when we all got together, then we started, like, hashing it out. And things just kind of develop. Like, someone will go, Michael will go, I got this beat. And he'll figure it out, go, I think it's, like, 15, 16 or, or whatever. We'll figure it out afterwards. He might not know what it is right. to begin with, or I definitely don't know what the fuck it is when I'm playing. <laughs> I need him to figure out and tell me, oh, that's the time signature, because I just feel it, you know? Right. And we all just collaborate, and it's a really healthy environment where everyone in the band is encouraged to contribute and to come in with no filter musically. I think our guitar player, uh, Bumblefoot, was... He didn't know what to do with himself because he wasn't in a situation where he's never been in a situation where he's been encouraged to be unfiltered. Right. And he had such freedom. It was almost kind of weird for him, I think. And Mike and I are going more, more. Freedom can be the hardest thing for an artist, man. If you don't have any restrictions at all, like, yeah, that's that's the hardest way to make good. And art. Mike and our jobs as producers is to harness the uh, the psychotic symphony. There you go. We, the <laughs> controlled chaos within and to make it focused. Wow. And that's what that's what we did as producers. 1516. Huh? I don't think I could even identify that beat. It's very easy. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a whole section on the instrumental album that's in 1916. It's basically 4-4 four, four with three extra 16th notes. It's very easy. Okay. Yeah. Just count as slow and work, your, work yourself up. You could do it. It's not going to happen. You could do it. We got a kit in there. Brad, do you want to just get worked a little bit? That's probably the beat I would actually play unknowingly. <laughs> right. You would think you're playing a 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. I would think I was playing straight right. up four on the floor and I'd be a 15-16. When it, when it comes to some of this really complex stuff, I mean, how do you remember it? Like, especially live, like, do you ever feel like a part's coming up and you're like, uh... Well, Mike has an elephant memory. So yeah. for him, it's not an issue. For me, that's a different story. I have to play it a million times in order to ingrain it. Right. Mike, does that go for stuff outside music do you just have a good memory in general well i'm very ocd like uh in terms of organizing everything if you go to my house i have a wall of ten thousand cds and if i could be on the other side of the room you just point to one of them i could tell you exactly which one it is i mean they're all completely <laughs> alphabetical chronological and that's the way my head goes and and i mean i'm here to talk about sons of apollo but the reality is i'm in like six bands at any one given time and and there's been several times the last couple of years where i'll within one weekend play with three different bands 
uh, each of which is doing like a three-hour show, and I have to have it on tap at, at all times. I, I just have that kind of memory. It's just, it's up there. Once I've written something or played something on stage, it's in there for life, and I could just literally just access it on the fly. That's awesome. Man. But uh, in answer to your question about, um, like, if I... I don't think about it. I don't think about it. It's just there. It's there for... If I did think about it, I would probably fuck it up. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if I had to, like, sit there and say, oh, shit, this part that's coming up. I, like, I don't think about the part that's coming up. I just feel it. It's not a... It's not a thing. It, Billy Sheehan, our bass player, has a, an expression that he uses all the time. If you think, you stink. Like, <laughs> like if you're sitting there on stage like and you're that. thinking about what you have to play, then then you suck. You know, right. like, you should be able to feel it. It should be inside you. You shouldn't have to be thinking about it or concentrating on it like a freaking machine or a robot. You know, it should be something that you feel and it just naturally happens. Yeah, you're right. I actually, I wonder, what are your thoughts? I, I've i gone back and forth with a bunch of people who are songwriters, writers, painters, things like that, about the creative process. And some people really believe in, like, like you said, waiting for the muse to call when you're there and, and waiting for Apollo. Or like some people are, are grinders, you know what I mean? They're like, every day I'm going to sit down and practice my art if I'm feeling it or not. I know, and, we know those people. And I feel like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like there is a balance, but sometimes I do feel what you were and what Billy Sheehan talks about. In order to get that way where you're not thinking, maybe you do have to grind the technical side first to be able to be free at some you know? i mean look no one's born out of the womb a virtuoso just all of a sudden playing chopin etudes you have <laughs> right. to grind in the beginning but the key is to do the grind and then forget about it right and then as long as you you know if you continue the grind then you're going to start sounding like cyborgs and you're going to lose the human element sure. of the music and music is a feel thing and that's I, I think, think you don't want to suffocate the muses by by grinding it. And I right. think that's the one thing about everybody in this band. Everybody in Sons of Apollo are the sort that can play anything, but we're also the sort that like aren't sitting there like like a machine. And like I think everybody in this band goes by their goes by feel and goes by the human element and wanting to have personality and wanting to I think that's the difference between what we're doing with this band and a lot of the other quote unquote progressive bands. Um, I think everybody in this band is, you know, we, we all know our shit. We could play our shit, but we want to get up there and have some personality. Sure. You know? And, um, I, I, it's like, I, like I went to Berkeley, uh, for, the, for that year and, and I learned scales, modes and sight singing and ear training. And Derek went there as well. I think it's, it's, you know, people ask me like, do you have to go to music school to be a great player? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think it depends what you want to do with your music. Like I just wanted to learn that stuff because I was young and I wanted to have the toolbox. Right. It's one thing to have the toolbox to draw from, but I wouldn't want to have to like exclusively only you know be that type of player i want to have that stuff learn it but then forget it and just you know be myself right what about when you guys are listening to other bands like are you listening for the production or you're like oh i didn't like are you able to kind of listen to it without like critiquing it or analyzing it mike can more than i do i'm very analytical like if i listen to something i'm listening to you know i i i I listen for the flaws, like right away. The flaws sure. just come out of me. And I go, ugh. I start puckering, like if it's flat or blah 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 blah. Uh, I like listening to hip hop music because it's so far removed from what I do professionally and what I play that I can listen to it and enjoy it without picking it apart. That's cool. Mike is more able to enjoy, I think, music more than I am. But I think huh. there's two there's two ways. I mean, I could listen to uh, an ACDC album or an Alice in Chains album and just let it casually play in the background and enjoy it. But then there's other times where if I want to be analytical, I could sit down with an album and listen to it 20 times, 20 different ways. One time I might be listening to just the drums. Then one time I'm just going to listen to the guitar. Next time I'm going to listen to the production and the way that things are panned. Next time I'll listen to oh, the way the vocals are written or listen to the lyrics. I mean, you could literally list... 20 different ways to listen to any particular song. I'm the same with watching films. You know, a lot of times if I'm watching a film, I'll watch it sometimes for the actors, sometimes for the writing, sometimes for the cinematography, sometimes for the editing, sometimes for the score that's in it. You know, it depends on how far you want to go. I mean, a lot of times with music, you don't want to have that. You want to just listen to it in the background 
Um, I think that's the beauty with, you know, with hat, like, like I said about having that toolbox, you can, you can listen to it or watch something a certain way if you want to, but you don't have to. Right. Hmm. Interesting. How do you do? I mean, you must have so many people asking you like super technical, like what kind of like, Oh, I hate that. Like, <laughs> what kind of drums are you using? Yeah. <laughs> How like, often do you re bevel? Feel it, Sunger. Sorry. What was the question? <laughs> I just, yeah. I mean, yeah. I just feel you guys must get so much of that just because of the kind of technical nature of it. Are we getting it here? Too? No. I mean, put you it this way. Even you're, know the you're definitely not going to get safe. it here. No. Oh. I think when Trust we were me. when we were both in Dream Theater, <laughs> okay. I think you know it was it, it was par for the course. But you know what, the Sons of Apollo is not about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a time and place for that. But I don't know. We're not those guys, really. Yeah. I think you know, people immediately think I'm like when it comes to drums that I'm like very technical or I, I, I know the grain of wood that's, you know, in, the, in my 14 inch. Oh, we got a puckered maple with a bird's eye uh, yeah, marinated have, in, in moose juice. <laughs> I have no idea any of that stuff. I, nor do I care. You yeah, know, it really tightens up the sound I heard. I know nothing about that stuff. You know, I think that's really interesting. Like, I think that's really cool. Like, uh, I, th- I think people might be surprised by that. I'm, yeah, I mean, people think that, like, you know, just to talk about drums, like, that I am this technical guy that, you know, sits home and practices quadruple paradiddles at 420 BPM for six hours a day. No, not at all. I mean, my drum heroes are Keith Moon and Lars Ulrich, who are two of the sloppiest drummers in history. <laughs> and those guys are my heroes. It's true. You know, because they play with personality. Right. I watch them, and they're entertaining. And I would rather watch a drummer that makes me want to play drums than, than watch a drummer that makes me want to quit playing drums. Right. <laughs> I've been in nearly like half a dozen almost physical confrontations standing up for Lars Ulrich. Yeah, like me too. Like so many. Yeah. I'm like, how the fuck are you going to talk shit about that guy ever? No. It offends me. I mean, to me, he was, me. he was a role model for me because, uh, because he was... Uh, a leader. Yeah. He was a songwriter. He was an innovator. He's an entertainer. He's kind of the balls, too, yeah. isn't he? I mean, you know? I, you know, and, and the drumming on those early albums were great and a big influence to me as well. But I don't care that, like, maybe live he's not perfect or a little sloppy or whatever. I don't care. He's entertaining to watch. And I respect the fact that he took that band to the top. Totally. You know, he's, he's the leader and he's the spokesman and he's the, the architect and the visionary. And th- that, to me, was a, a role model. Sure. And what's a what's a Metallica song without a bizarrely placed crash cymbal just yeah. in the weirdest timing somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> what kind of music are you guys uh like any new bands, new artists, stuff that's been turning you on lately? I love uh two two young bands that I love, both of whom are band members made up of teenagers under the age of twenty. I love Greta Van Fleet. Uh, they're this band out of Michigan and they sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. Nice. I haven't heard a band cop the Zeppelin vibe without the original great song writing. And they're, they're right. under 20 years old. <laughs> I mean, they're like, how do they, how do you cop that real vintage retro <laughs> sound when you're that age? And then the other, I guess just, Plant and Bonham were that, were, were that young. Yeah, but they, they were started. writing they, the they fucking wrote. tunes, though. Yeah. These guys are like pantomiming. So, so you're saying you don't like them? You're mocking <laughs> no, I like, them? No, I think they're great. They're affectionate pantomime or affectionate right, but, mimic, but, but they're I, not writing great songs like Led Zeppelin 1. Well, nobody's going to. Well. But right, look, I'm allowed to like the bands I like. You could pick your own bands. Okay, you're right. Sorry the, about that. The other band I like is this band called The Lemon Twigs, and uh, they're two teenagers from Long Island, from Hicksville, actually. Nice. And they are like rooted right out of 1966 i mean cool. they look like the kinks meets the who meets the zeppelin uh not, not zeppelin the beatles and Badfinger. i mean they're really really cool they got the 60s thing down and and once again they're like 18 19 years old like how do you have such a heavy influence from something that was you know 40 years before you were born yeah, yeah. but th- these are two of my new favorites cool that's cool i mean what do you think keeps you guys from kind of being cynical about like newerton just being like yeah, i've heard this before 
Well, obviously, nothing has stopped him. That's kind of how I feel like I am a lot of the time, too, so I can really relate to that. I need to hear a new band out of you, Derek. We've got to know. You know know. what? I I haven't heard anything new that I really like, but I love the uh, new Meshuggah record. Oh, come on. Meshuggah's 20 years old, 25 years old. But what else? I mean, I haven't heard anything. You got to listen to Kojira. I like that. Uh, Kajira yeah, is good. That's good. Not that that's good. good. Is good. Uh, newer than Mashuga. Well, ten years. That's only two presidential terms old. <laughs> <laughs> Aside fast fact, Hicksville, New York. I'm not from Long Island, but I know it's the home of Billy Joel and Al Petrelli. Really? That's correct. My yeah. grandfather used to own a movie theater in Hicksville. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, not really, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Neither was my fast fact. We get, along, we get a lot of Long Island listeners, uh-huh. I yeah. assume. I'm yeah. from Long Beach. I, I grew up on Long Beach. I would think there's some Long Island listeners. Yeah. And Long Island, New Jersey, I feel like, have a bond in a way because... We all both, have to travel to Manhattan. And kind of look the same way by Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, I used bit, to go to know? shows at uh, Birch Hill in um, nice. Old Bridge, New Jersey. No and it was very much like going to a show on Long Island. Yeah. You go to White Castle afterwards at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same Sounds same thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we used to play there all the time. Birch Hill. Yeah, yeah, you must back have in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Sundance was like the eighties. Birch Hill was the nineties. I saw many shows at the Birch Hill. Yeah, it's an okay place. <laughs> this is dirty. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, it's you know, it's a club. Yeah, <laughs> was it like a big dirt like road to get there or something? Or yeah, like a it's big, a weird area weird, in New weird, Jersey. Like, Sayreville and Old Bridge, Old Bridge. areas. Yeah. It's like getting out there towards the bay, but not quite there yet. Yeah, it's a creepy lost area. I know some. My brother is a uh, a Votech English teacher, and a lot of the kids come from that area. They're they're funky. Do they, I don't know if they have fun. clubs around there anymore, though. Still got I mean, the Starland Ballroom. Oh, Starland, that's right. Down there in I've Sayreville. played there many times. That's yeah. right. Where's yeah. that? That's Sayreville. That's Sayreville, not too far. Yeah, I've played there with. Uh, Twisted Sister and the Winery Dogs and Home of Bon Jovi. Yeah, that's our claim to fame. Mm. Oh, you yeah? guys got Billy Joel. We got Bon Jovi. <laughs> what do you mean we got Billy Joel? We got Twisted Sister and Kiss and Anthrax and the Ramones. That's true. Quiet yeah. Riot. No, Quiet Riot's L.A. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Randy of? Rhodes. That's L.A. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Shit. All right, I'm out. Yeah. I, I was curious when you guys are making this record or just a record in general. I mean, how do you guys avoid kind of stepping on each other and kind of like not has like too much going on at once like do you take like are you like this person's gonna play for this long well we as we produce the album so that's kind of one of the main jobs of a producer is to kind of oversee that make sure that there's space especially for the vocals i mean honestly that that was very important for us to make sure that the vocals had their space yeah yeah how mature of us right i think we've we've grown up yeah before it was about the solos and actually this record we we really wanted the vocals to be great and very listenable. Sure. A lot of progressive metal. The singers, you're singing all these anus puckering high notes. <laughs> or, or breathy, like over. <laughs> or the fake anger, like I'm mad and I really have nothing to be mad about. Fanger. Hashtag finger. Fake anger, finger. Yeah. And so we really wanted, we feel that our vocalist, Jeff Scott Soto, did an amazing job. He's very listenable throughout yeah. the record. It has a rock and roll feel. He's not going to offend anyone, but it's ballsy and, yeah. and manly. It doesn't sound like a, a affected libretto from the opera. But very melodic at the same time. Very yeah. melodic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No melodic. Cookie Monster. And yeah. another, and not, and, in all fairness, we didn't want Cookie Monster metal vocals like a lot of the bands too. Yeah, Jeff is like, if you listen to like, uh, I hate to say this, seventies or eighties AOR stuff, but like Journey. Well, shit, he was in Journey for a while. Uh-huh. Um, but like Kansas and Foreigner, Steve Walsh, Lou Graham, Steve Perry. I think Jeff is definitely cut from that kind of cloth. So it's pretty, sure. pretty cool to have those kind of vocals mixed in with some of these crazy shredding or heavy riffs you know it's 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 a good good combination yeah do you guys have a thing in the band where i know you guys are all friends and peers but are you ever like what was it like being guns and roses or like what was like ask well, like mr big stories no, or... forget mr big it was uh derek's favorite band and his heroes of van halen okay and billy sheehan of course was in right. david lee david oh, lee roth's david band lee roth. right out of van halen yeah. Even smile yeah i mean yeah. that was 
So when our first tour together that we did, Derek was just like a kid sitting around the fireplace. <laughs> Tell me more stories, Uncle Billy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. Like, and Billy would hold court and tell all his David Lee well, Van Halen stories. And we're like eating our marshmallows at the campfire. <laughs> Can you tell were us you, one? Yeah, were you? <laughs> I know you, you probably can't get into specifics, but were you happy or displeased when you found out all the Van Halen stories? Uh, like, you mean the Noel Monk book in specific? No, just like sometimes in my experience, I've met a band that I loved, and I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't love this band as Listen, much anymore. The music, the music is first, and then you know everyone's human, and everyone has their flaws. Or whatever. So, you know, I'm not going to let that affect how I feel about my love for a band. I'm just fishing for an Eddie Van Halen <laughs> yeah. fucked up story. Can we have one? He's my favorite musician. Yeah, there's only one that really <laughs> that matters. So, in 2006, a friend of mine uh, has a band they call the Starfuckers. Okay. And so they were hired to play at Eddie Van Halen's house at a party eddie cool. van halen at the time was collaborating with some porn director this is when eddie was maybe have not in his best time you know he's collaborating with a porn director and did the music soundtrack for this porn and decided to have this huge melee <laughs> at his estate up in uh cold water up in the hills okay and so my friend's band the Starfuckers, was hired to be the band and they know that i was a huge Van Halen fans he goes Derek you have to play on this gig so I'm all fuck this is amazing so we show up and uh and Eddie was there and he was just all over the place just crazy but for one minute I got him alone I start talking to him I go Ed I go can you can you take me I was my friend Brian the drummer I go can you take us up to see the, the studio 5150 and he goes yeah come on huh? and I'm going <laughs> and so he takes us up and he's like leaving there's like 50 people scattering like getting ready for this the party this is the day before at the rehearsal okay and so me and my friend brian are in the studio and i'm like it was very surreal i felt like it was a fucking dream like there's no way this is really going <laughs> sure. on and i walk into the 5150 studio and i look up and i see the shark guitar that's on the cover of yes. women and children first on the back and then i see uh like these identifiable guitars that I've been looking in circus and hit parader since I was, you know, 14 years old. And he starts just going down these crazy stories. And it was just fucking insane. And the next day, I just remember calling my friend going, all right, we need to debrief. Let's just go through everything that happened just to make sure that we didn't dream this. And, and it was cool. But he was showing us, he was telling us about... uh we're going to get back together with Roth, but I told him that he has to have his own tour bus and my kid plays bass. <laughs> well, all right. And so then he showed us videos of he, Alex, and Wolfgang rehearsing just the music, just the um. video. I'm going, fuck, this is, this is really insane. And so then at the party, he ends up sitting in with us for four songs. And oh, it's wow. on YouTube. If you look it up, go Eddie Van Halen uh, Backyard. I have seen party. this. Yeah. Yes. And wow. so, yeah, I'm on keyboards. You'll see me okay. I'm playing the uh, jump with it. That's totally me on that. And so uh, that was a trip. That was a, a dream come true. I would like to play with Edward again uh, now rather than in sure. that state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was moments when he was playing where it was just like, the fucking yeah, shit right those you know few and far between unfortunately that's what i watched that video like it, within the last month for the wow. first time just came across it and yeah. there was like a bunch of and someone was right up front yeah he, we played like a shirt uh, we off. played jump we played uh ain't talking about love um you really got me that was fucking awesome man that's amazing yeah. mike have you had any i'm sure you've had those moments too where you've met someone and had that kind of played with someone you really grew up admiring Oh God! I mean, I could, so, I could. The the two that immediately come to mind. I have a Paul McCartney story and I have a Frank Zappa story. So pick one. Oh my God! Oh, I'll I go can't. S- I'll take Zappa. What Zappa? about you guys? I don't. They, I, I don't know. They both sound. Let's do a story. vote. Let's do a vote. <laughs> the host. I know. I've, I've heard Zappa. a lot of crazy Brad? Zappa stories. I'd like to hear a Paul McCartney. Brad McCartney, story. Joni, you're the deciding vote. Uh, what story <clears throat> do you think is better? Uh, um. I don't know. I, I'll give you the Zappa story because okay. I just told the McCartney story in another okay. interview, so okay. I don't want to repeat That's myself. Cool. Or re- unique content. But I, 
it's kind of like what Derek. It's kind of like Derek's story because I got to go to Frank's house and spend the day at his house and his studio. And is that West Coast? It, no, yeah, he's in in L.A. In the what is it? Uh, up on the oh, uh, on Studio the City, Studio City Hills, Hollywood Hills, Hollywood Hills. Gotcha. Now, now this was after Frank was already gone. I never got to meet Frank. Frank died in 93. He's one of my biggest heroes. I have his mustache tattooed on the back of my leg. Yes. But he's one of my all-time heroes. And um, anyway, years later, fast forward, um, I became friends with, with Dweezil and uh, took Dweezil out with, with Dream Theater on tour and became Playing? friends with... Yeah, yeah. It was cool. uh, Dweezil at the Zappa Play Zappa show. Oh, right. And I yeah. took them out as a opening band for Dream Theater cool. on one of our tours. Um, and I, I got to sit in uh, most nights with them and actually uh, play like four or five different songs throughout the tour. Each time I sat in was a different song. If you look up on YouTube, um, Mike Portnoy, Bobby Brown, it has me singing Bobby Brown yes. at the Beacon Theater in New York, which was that's a whole other story because I slept out for tickets in front of the Beacon Theater in 88 for Zappa tickets. Wow. Uh, back in the day, you know, <laughs> if you wanted concert tickets, you had to go to Ticketron or Ticketmaster on Saturday morning and, uh, you know, before the internet. And and uh, I remember sleeping on the streets of New York in front of the Beacon Theater in 88, well, actually 87 for the 88 tour. And, uh, and then years later, ended up playing at the Beacon, sitting in with Dweezil singing frank's music but anyway very cool anyhow i digest uh, <laughs> so here we I fast forward and i've become friends with um uh dweezil's drummer joe travers who's uh he's basically in charge of the zappa archives oh wow and um and i also got to know frank's wife gail and joe and gail invited me out to the house next time i was in la so i got to spend the afternoon at at zappa's house which to me and hanging out at Frank's house with with Gail would be like getting invited up to the Dakota with Yoko. Right. You know, that's what it was like, because basically Frank is my biggest hero of all time. Anyway, there's not much more to the story other than kind of like what Derek was just saying about being at Eddie's studio. You know, for me to be in Frank's studio and look around and they showed me um, the vault where every zappa recording wow. ever was so cool and joe let me pick a few things he was like all right what do you want to hear wow. so i was able to hear some outtakes from the roxy shows from 74 and then we pulled up the joe's garage multi-tracks and we're able to like isolate the, the drum tracks really? and stuff yeah wow. that would be intense it was amazing That's and wild. then they took me into frank's office and um i got to like literally frank's glasses wow. were sitting on the desk like with dust on them untouched for I don't know, 15 years. I guess I went to the house in like 2008 or nine. So that's about 15 years after he died. Wild. And uh, yeah, literally his glasses and um, just it was surreal to be, you know, in his house with his family um, and to look around. And, and actually it was cool because um, with all these vaults, they actually, I remember uh, Joe or Gail, somebody telling me that they their Betamax didn't work anymore. They had all these beta tapes that they couldn't play. And I actually had an extra Betamax at home. So I shipped it over to them <laughs> cool. so they could actually continue to, to archive some of the, the, the tapes and stuff like that. So I kind of indirectly was able to help keep the Zappa archives yeah, alive. Yeah. That's so that's my Zappa story. Just spending the day at his house was, was one of the greatest things in my life. Gotcha. Can you uh, play the black page? Hell no. <laughs> no way. No. I, I mean, that stuff is... Is just inhuman. It's pretty insane. Yeah. What is that? The black page, well, you could probably explain it better well, than Well, it's I just could. probably the most uh, difficult dexter, 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 what would be the word? Dexter, dexterous. Dexterous polyrhythmical piece of music ever written. You know why it's called the black page? The title? No. So there were so many notes and rhythms and patterns that, like, when you read the sheet music, it was just a black page. Black. Yeah. So it's, a very, it's a very soothing listen. Yeah. yeah right. Rather soothing to the ear. Like, like a dance to like it. Like a colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> who is it? Was it Bozio was the only one yeah. who did it? Was the, well, the, he wrote it for Terry Bozio, I believe. Right. Yeah. And then ever since then, every Zappa drummer has had to play it. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what, it, like, I I see it. I mean, you can find it, like, online. It's oh, yeah. not hard to find. But to know what it actually says or how to play it is insane. Yeah. Yeah, totally oh, yeah. insane. Derek, I have a, a random question. Um, 
I had read that you are a uh, amateur historian on on Armenian history and things like that. Um, I know, or, or just I know really, a little bit really I mean, into that. I mean, I'm Armenian. I know some things. Some I'm not really a historian. No things. I got. I, I know, know things. Some, I know some things. <laughs> but but it's something that's like interests you, and you you look into well, it history sometimes. In, history in general uh, interests me, and and more and more as I get older, I've been trying to read more and try to you know things that interest me in Armenian history, Greek history, just history in general. Yeah, it's fascinating to me to know where we've been and all that. I'd like to learn more. Have you tried uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History by no. any chance? Oh, you got to try it. It's, it? It's, it's an insanely good podcast history series. Wow. Um, guys named Dan Carlin. I'll the, check it out. It's great. Uh, like the World War One podcast series is six parts, each part being three to four hours. I mean, it's like seriously to the point that America didn't even come till episode five. That's wow. how that's how detailed hmm. the arm. Cool. I love History Channel. I think that's cool. And- oh yeah, it's the best. Gotcha. And it actually has helped me through the current political climate. Like you know, I listen to a eighteen hours on World War One and go, oh okay, we might make it. Hmm. <laughs> this isn't that bad, you know? Like or some things sound so similar, you realize yeah, that things repeat themselves. Has happened before and yeah. repeats, and this isn't. You know, it feels so unique in the time and the so moment. So what parallel through your uh, studies, what parallels do you see? Well, more than parallel. Well, you always see and it, and it goes with every story. Right now I'm listening to one about the Romans uh, and the Celtic Holocaust. Wow. And the one thing you always see at any point in any society is the society and then the drawings to power and money. And spreading your society out, be it by religion or just general indoctrination into your culture. And then it gets too big. The demise. The Roman, no one ever time. thought the Roman Empire at the time was going to exactly. fold. And, and it became and, and something similar where you learn, you know, the three major powers, families in the Roman Empire became more powerful than the Roman Empire itself. Which is starting to sound kind of familiar. You know what I mean? Where these yeah. private... Families, money, companies are actually becoming more powerful than the structure itself. And that's that's a problem. That's the beginning of the end. Often. Yeah. Yeah. But it's happened to other people. So so we'll be all right. (laughs) Sometimes it makes me feel better. Yeah. But those other people on those other times didn't have nuclear weapons at their at their uh, fingertips. Yeah. But is a little it the, different. Is it the fear of that that would keep us away from it? Uh, Maybe not, too, you know. I don't know about. There's some people out there with those nuclear weapons that are not have no fear whatsoever. <laughs> one is named Jonah Bayer. <laughs> not me. He bought one in the 80s. <laughs> no. <Olivia. laughs> He's been harnessing some been Manhattan harnessing project <laughs> shit in his apartment in Brooklyn for years. <laughs> and now he's ready to launch. He's ready to go. Jonah, what are you going to launch it on? You're from Cleveland, so <laughs> Toledo, you know, Toledo's on the list for sure. (laughs) Um, I was curious. I mean, like this whole like progressive rock, progressive metal. I mean, is that a term that you kind of like have identified with? Like, or is it just like a word people use? No, No, I don't know. I don't like honestly. I like to think of us as a rock band with okay with the chops. Progressive. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to disparage anything, but it's just I think of. I, th- I think rock musicians are cooler than progressive musicians. I, I was a kid. I've always dreamed about being in a rock band, right. not a progressive band. It, I mean, I, my other bands definitely yeah. are. I mean, Dream Theater was a pro- is a progressive metal band, and uh, my bands with Neil Morris are progressive rock bands. Um, so, yeah, I have no problem with that term, and I like it for certain things I do. But I think in the case of this band, Sons of Apollo, I think it's kind of transcended that to a whole different place i think it's i had i had david lee roth and eddie van halen on my wall not john anderson and steve Howe. <laughs> well, I just to me that yeah. was just a more bitching fucking yeah. alternative here <laughs> pussy and fucking drugs and fucking and rather than well steve Eric, and john were into drugs and trolls and fucking you know all that other shit i'd rather fucking get pussy and fucking <laughs> smoke pot 
<laughs> what about Dirk Sherinian, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> I mean, I love what, it. what was that? What was that? I guess like, coming back to the progressive thing when you guys were in Dream Theater. I mean, what was that oh, era like pussy. of like the early ni- the nineties, like shit. images and words, pull me under? When the, that, what was it like for this kind of technical music you guys are playing to get so popular in the mainstream? Well, what I did with Dream Theater was uh, a different animal than this. But if you want to talk about my mindset back then, um, we were trying to fill a void in progressive music that wasn't there at the time. Mm. Progressive music essentially died in the late 70s when punk rock came around. So most of the bands that were progressive rock heroes in the 70s, by the time the 80s came around, you know, Yes and Genesis, they were doing all this watered-down commercial radio music. So when we formed Dream Theater uh, in the mid-80s, we're kind of trying to fill a void for long songs and a lot of technical parts and instrumental bits and, you know, this progressive rock style, but combine it with the the hard rock metal stuff that was coming around, Metallica, and, you know, before that was Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and Sabbath and stuff like that. So the blueprint was to, it was like the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, you know, to, to put the two together and come up with this progressive metal thing. And when Dream Theater broke with Images and Words around 92... We were just, uh, I guess, not the right band at the right time. We were kind of the wrong band at the wrong time. <laughs> and I think maybe that's why we resonated with some people. Because at that time, it was all about Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots and, you know, uh, the whole Soundgarden and Seattle scene. And nobody was doing any kind of heavy progressive music. So we were kind of filling a void for... Inevitably, every town is going to have these musician drummers and guitar players that want to hear that kind of shredding playing. Um, so we kind of filled that void. And, uh, you know, it was a big part of what I did for 25 years with that band. But, uh, you know, that was then and this is now. I think what what Sons of Apollo is doing is definitely cut from a different cloth. Do you feel like yeah. you guys are also filling, Sons of Apollo, filling a certain void as well, like doing something that you're not really hearing that much? Yeah, I think not only are we filling a void, but we're creating... We're setting the bar and redefining uh, a genre. We don't know what genre that is, but I think we're in our own world. It's we're I don't creating think our own thing. If you hear like rock, classic rock stuff, like I think this band is kind of cut from the cloth of like Van Halen, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Rush. You know, throw that kind of stuff in there as well. But these days, you don't get kind of straight up rock bands that can play. And I think that's the difference with this band. You know, it's kind of like straight up rock with serious chops. Like Derek said at the beginning of the, you know, discussion. It's, that's kind of like what the, the calling card of this band is. You know, it's tunes that, that have hooks in them and that feel good and have personality and balls. But it, the, you know, when it's time to shred, it's there as well. Right. Do you think like mainstream music is like even prepared? for hard rock bands to be mainstream anymore like knows you know what we're just gonna we do what we do and stay true to it and if people resonate with it then awesome but i I mean luckily we're we're in a position where the five of us all have individual followings so we have a fan base that's going to be built in sure but god i mean i i would hate to think of like having to build this band from scratch, you know, or, or any, I'd hate to be in any band and have to come out of nowhere and try to build up your name. I mean, I'm lucky that I have the support of my fan base and the, you know, the social media that I have, like I could reach these people, um, which, which is going to ultimately help this band, not just me, but all five of us have our own names. So you put our audiences together, there's going to be a built in audience for us. Um, you know, if we had to do this from scratch right now, it's, it's, it'd be hard. It's you know what what kind of market is there for rock bands these days? You know if you look at the charts, <laughs> not much. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's all pop and hip hop, and I don't know what the hell it is, you know. But yeah. it's not what we do, right? Yeah, dude, your social media is insane. I was doing research today. It's I have so like a much. million and a half people on my Facebook page. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah, for a drummer, you know, like <laughs> yeah. how many drummers have that? Maybe I don't even know if Tommy Lee has it. I don't know. I, I look. I have a lot of gratitude for that. Dave Grohl's probably the only one. Yeah, Dave. Dave. Well, but he's but he had to. He's not a drummer. He had to quit. He's a, yeah, he yeah. had to be a singer frontman. To, yeah, yeah. It, I I have a lot of gratitude for that. Really, it's been a an amazing um, ride for me to 
you know, have been able to build up this following and have this support system, which enables me to do all these different things. I, I thank, thank each and every one of them, you know. Hey, thank hey. you. To, all right. Thank you to Mike and Derek for coming by. That was a um, lot of rock. That was a lot of rock. Uh, check out Sons of Apollo. A little jazz. Psychotic Symphony, out now. It came out October 20th, so you can listen to it now. Um, yeah, you can... Put on uh, your headphones. Yeah, put on your get headphones. Get high and listen to Psychotic Symphony. Yeah. And get, I think that's the perfect way to listen try, to that. Try to play along to it. I bet you can't. <laughs> what was the time signature he said again? Like 1913 or yeah, something? It's just like... I, uh, <laughs> I couldn't even like... I tried to count it out. Like it didn't make any sense to me in my no. head. I, was I like, liked how nonchalant they were about it too. Yeah. Like, no, it's easy. You just He's like, like, dude, I just do that every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've never done anything that wasn't in 4-4. Yeah, I'm, me neither. I'm pretty sure Maybe that three, four. Maybe. <laughs> By accident. He also was like, yeah, I did that for two measure, like two bars. And then I go into like the other part. Yeah, it's insane. Anyway, it, anyway you should definitely get high. Listen to it. <laughs> Maybe you, I guess we should have told you to get high before you listen to this. I podcast. would say that for all music. True. Uh, True. From my experiences. Okay. Well, or maybe not. Uh, anyways, <laughs> Patreon.com. Yeah. Patreon.com. Slash off track. Slash off track. Go see what we got. Check out our incentives. Um, also. Goingofftrack.com for everything else. Right. Um, Goingofftrack.com. I'm just repeating what Brad said. <laughs> uh, Pulse Music. Check out Pulse Music. Located in beautiful Manhattan. Um, what do you got going on, dude? Don't you want to push it? Push uh, it do I have anything going on? Um. Wow. I guess not. I was okay. just on. Oh, I was just on a podcast. I was just on a. Noisy's doing a different podcast about Drake, every day, and yeah. I was on it. Th- I was on it uh, this week, and uh, they wanted someone who had hung out with Drake for two hours. That was me. They're really stretching for people. <laughs> That's a very to, specific guest. Yeah. I was at the. I was at the vice office, anyways, for some other stuff, and they were like, "You met Drake, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, once." And they're like, "Do you want to do our podcast?" I was like, "Yeah, I guess." They got it. They're doing what every day is a podcast. Yeah, it's like a Drake oh month God. thing. So I was on there. Like, I mean, like literally, they're like, "What's he like?" I'm like, "Dude, I don't know." I worked with. I did. It. We shot an episode of Sound Advice with him with my sister. Uh, okay. Um, so I was like, he was nice. Like, I didn't have a lot to say about him. Specifically. He liked the crackers. At, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, check me out on the, on the noisy, noisy vice uh, Drake podcast. Uh, that's really all I have to promote. Sadly. <laughs> Right. What about you, Brad? No, we're good. I think we're good. I think we can sign off. And All right, let these people go. All right, we're done with you. Both Thanks to everyone for supporting the podcast. Thanks, Sons of Apollo, for coming by, and we will be back next week. Thanks, bye. <laughs>